Welcome to the Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. It is my sincere intention that after consuming this episode, however you do it, by listening to the podcast or watching this video, that you will acquire the happiness habit. There's nothing I want more than for you to simply be happy. And I know that sounds very basic and simple, but happiness is the secret. We have talked many times about the feeling being the secret because from that feeling base, you create the world around you. But research shows that happiness creates a huge advantage and it is real. In his book, The Happiness Advantage, Sean Aker writes that when we are happy, when our mindset and mood are positive, we are smarter, more motivated, and thus more successful. Happiness is the center and success revolves around it. Now, a lot of people I meet are trying to follow a formula that says, first, I'm going to work hard and then I can become successful. And once I become successful, then I will be happy, pushing their happiness into this other place. But happiness is available for you now. And I want you to acquire this happiness. First of all, what is happiness? How do scientists define happiness essentially as the experience of positive emotions, pleasure combined with deeper feelings of meaning and purpose? Happiness implies a positive mood in the present and positive outlook for the future. Martin Seligman, the pioneer in positive psychology, has broken it down into three measurable components, pleasure, engagement, and meaning. His studies have confirmed though most of us know this intuitively, that people who pursue only pleasure experience only part of the benefits of happiness can bring, while those who pursue all three routes lead to the fullest life. Perhaps the most accurate term for happiness then is the one Aristotle used, eudaimonia, which translate not directly to happiness, but to human flourishing this definition resonates because happiness is the joy we feel striving after our potential. The chief engine of happiness is positive emotions since happiness is above all else a feeling. In fact, some researchers prefer the term positive emotions or positivity to happiness because while they are essentially synonymous, happiness is a far more vague and unwieldy term. Barbara Fredrickson, a researcher at the University of North Carolina, describes the 10 most common positive emotions, joy, gratitude, serenity, interest, hope, pride, amusement, inspiration, awe, and love. Those are things I want to bring into your life. I would feel so happy myself, so much more happier if I could see your happiness because the world around me is reflected about what's within and I am happy right now. I cannot tell you how happy I am and I want to share this happiness with you. So I went on a search to see how I could share this happiness. What could I do? 
There are two authors I really like that write about happiness. Maxwell Maltz, which we recently covered in an episode on dehypnotizing yourself of false beliefs. And Walter M. Germain from his book, The Magic Power of Your Mind, has a chapter on how to develop the happiness habit. So my question to you, right now in this moment, are you happy? That is not a silly question, nor is it an impertinent one. It is rather a very pertinent question. Without happiness, your life is virtually meaningless. No success is truly a success unless it brings with it happiness. You could be a trillionaire, but if you were an unhappy trillionaire, that would be terrible. No segment of your everyday life has true value unless happiness accompanies it. The Greek philosopher Epictetus, who arrived at many truths during his full lifetime many centuries ago, said quite plainly, God hath made all men to enjoy happiness and constancy of good. But do you enjoy happiness? Not just momentary happiness, small happiness, temporary happiness, but full and complete happiness at all times. If you're inclined to say that such a thing is impossible, that is only a rationalization. Happiness is possible and should always be with you. Charles Darwin, one of the originators of the theory of evolution, wrote much about the hard struggle for existence, yet he also arrived at the same conclusion as Epictetus. All sentient things have been formed so as to enjoy as a general rule, happiness, wrote the British thinker, and he went further to say, happiness decidedly prevails. The right to be happy is yours. So let me repeat the question. Are you happy? From my experiences with thousands of people, in my dealings with them on social media and through coaching, people that I meet, as well as just passing acquaintanceships, I have discovered that all too few people are truly happy. In fact, many people do not know what happiness is, for they have never experienced it. In contemplating this episode, I thought about somebody out there having never been happy. This is absolutely unacceptable in this realm if you have never been happy, I want you to put it in the comments because we're going to make sure we find a way to make you happy. Whose fault is it that some people have never known happiness? I read the philosophers, I read the teachers, I read the religions, all agree that man himself is responsible for his happiness. It was Abraham Lincoln who perhaps summed it up so well when he said, that people are as happy as they make up their minds to be. Yet, you have only to look around to see how people try to hide their feelings to cover up their unhappiness. People are often unhappy, depressed, and worried. This is just not as it should be. And that's why the world seems so gloomy and desolate because we are seeing realities being created all around us from people's unhappiness because we know that feelings create reality. Epictetus comes to our rescue again, saying, If any be unhappy, let him remember that he is unhappy by reason of himself alone. Yeah, you're going to tell me, oh, it's 
some sort of combination of chemicals in my brain. That may be true. But even then, you can find happiness. You are not dependent on the chemicals of your brain. You are unhappy because of yourself alone. That's a shocking, shocking truth to learn. And from this truth, we can come up on another and far more important truth. If we create our own unhappiness, then we can create our own happiness. To create your own happiness, you must learn a great lesson and use it often. That is, you must learn the happiness habit. It means simply that you must say to yourself often, I make it a habit to be happy. I am happy. That's simple. Just say, I am happy. Write it down in the comments to affirm it. I don't care how you feel. Just write down, I am happy in the comments. In this simple statement lies a profound truth. The book of Proverbs says that he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. By cultivating the happiness habit, your life can be made more enjoyable and worthwhile. Habits are easy to cultivate. Ordinarily, we cultivate negative habits, but happiness is a positive habit. It is a habit that can bring you a happy life. By realizing this simple truth and by learning and utilizing the happiness habit, you can change your entire outlook on life. No longer will you face yourself in the mirror and say, I want to be happy, but things that happen to me, they won't let me be. What happens to you does not have the power to create either happiness or unhappiness. What does create the negative or positive happiness feeling within you is how you react to circumstances. How do you react to circumstances? I want you to write it in the comments, I react with happiness. Say it with me. I react with happiness. The happiness habit will teach you the one basic philosophy of reacting to circumstances. You may not be able to do much about things that happen to you, but you can do very much about how you react to them. You cannot demand happiness. That is almost surely courting disaster. It is one of the many paradoxes of psychology that the pursuit of happiness defeats its own purpose, said British psychotherapist J. Arthur Hadfield. We find happiness only when we do not directly seek it. The secret is not in seeking, but in expecting, developing the happiness habit, using it unconsciously, gaining the glory of happiness from it. These things will make happiness an everyday occurrence for you. You will expect it as you expect to eat and sleep daily. You wake up, brush your teeth, and you get happy. One of the first things and the use of the happiness habit will bring is the destruction of an enemy of nature, monotony. Nature abhors monotony as it abhors a vacuum. Monotony can destroy your youth. It can bring on age prematurely. Monotony is one of the key things I identified that I thought had caused unhappiness until I realized that monotony could even make me happy. The truly happy person does not find life monotonous and a life that is filled with happiness is one in which the mental faculties are not all allowed to rust. 
So many people have lived beyond 100 years old, have admitted that they were able to do so because of one simple fact. They kept their minds young by keeping themselves busy with new interests. For these centenarians, life was rarely monotonous. For them, life proved happy. The concepts are the two sides of the coin. Happiness banishes monotony. Monotony hinders happiness. Is this then the secret of longevity? Is the life that is filled with happiness, filled with new interests, filled with mental activity, the life that is going to be the longest and healthiest? The answer is yes. Again, I recall the complaints of people with whom I have come in contact. How often have I heard people say that if happiness depends on such things as new interests and mental activity, it must be a difficult thing to achieve? That is nonsense, pure and simple nonsense. Anyone can achieve happiness with little more than their own constructive reflections. This is the very basis of the therapeutic value of most religions. Anyone who attains self-mastery through subjective therapy, prayer, meditation, affirmation will never find life monotonous. An important factor in achieving victory in the battle against monotony is knowing what you can call your monotony limit. It is virtually impossible for your entire life, every waking hour, to be constantly in a progressive phase. There are all manner of minor monotonies in life. These are the monotonies brought on by necessary repetitions of daily tasks, repeated occurrence of required duties. These small monotonies, if allowed to accumulate without any interceding break of constructive activity and thought, can grow to a point where they will outweigh the happy moments of life. Monotony tends to become top-heavy when it grows, for it develops on a small base and broadens at the top. The first monotony limit is that point at which monotony accumulation starts to become top-heavy. The second monotony limit is the point at which your entire psychological structure will topple due to this top-heaviness. Monotony, frustration, and tension are the basis of much unhappiness and mental ill health, says Dr. Lawrence Cobb of the U.S. Public Health Service. A large number of people turn in upon themselves and suffer from such conditions because they do not know how to make proper use of the native impulses and energies that they have. Rousing latent faculties for the appreciation of art and promoting a wider indulgence in hobbies and religion will help these frustrated, tense people by giving them ease through activities that relieve tension and dispel monotony. You have to recognize your own monotony limit. Make a small chart on a card you can carry in your pocket to determine at what point your general welfare begins to break down due to undue monotony. You can call this an unhappiness chart. Take your card, divide the card as a chart with divisions from left to right, representing the days of the week from Sunday through Saturday, and divisions from top to bottom, standing from each hour of your waking day. For the first week, evaluate every hour as it ends. Decide whether the monotonous things you were forced to do during the hour outweighed those activities and thoughts that were not monotonous. If your decision is that monotony filled more than 20 minutes of that hour, blacken the square with your pencil, if the hour was less than one-third filled with monotony, leave it empty. At the end of the first week, you'll have a chart that resembles a checkered pattern of uncertain design. Although it is possible you may at times find a very definite pattern on your card, if this is the case, it means your days follow a set formula and should be changed. 
Now total the number of filled in squares and total the number of white squares. If the white squares are not twice as many as the black, you've exceeded the first monotony limit. If the white squares are fewer than the black, you've exceeded the second monotony limit. This is the technique that St. Walter St. Germain had recommended. For example, let us say you spend 16 waking hours a day in the seven day week. This will give you a total of 112 squares. If more than 56 are black, you are well beyond the danger limit. If more than 37 are black, you've passed into the danger zone. Keep up this unhappiness chart until your hours of excessive monotony are less than 25% of your waking day. Work to cut the percentage daily so that you can eventually build up your periods of happiness to 90% or more of each and every week. When I read this technique by Walter St. Germain, I didn't treat it as monotony as much as moments in which I was unhappy because I have found that I find meditation in monotonous situations and I was able to find joy in those monotonous situations. A lot of you aren't and I understand that. But I have found that even the most monotonous thing can be a happy occasion. And as Frederick Dotson teaches, the more you focus on the monotony, the more you're going to get. So after the first week or two, you should be able to give up marking your chart and you'll find that at bedtime, you'll be able to recall your day quite accurately to fill in the chart. Keep on recording your unhappiness until you find you've achieved a true level of living that is maximum amount of happiness constantly. Aim for 90% or greater as your level of living, except nothing less. Work until you reach that level and work to keep it until it becomes automatic. Watch your monotony limit carefully. Don't let it crowd you out of living a happy life. Possibly you will find, as I mentioned before, that the same hours of each day will be the black spots on the chart. If that is the case, analyze why they are there. Determine what causes these periods of general monotony or unhappiness at any particular time in every day. Rooting out the cause will help you overcome the monotony of some particularly boring aspect of your work or daily routine. Too often, you do not know consciously what things are apt to grind you down. Conscious recognition will make for conscious combat and conscious combat for ultimate victory over monotony. Human nature is so constituted that the average person will find it difficult to enrich his life through psychological understanding of himself, through spiritual growth, to keep pace with the physical and mental development. For a long time, it was thought that a human was divided into three parts, each distinct from the other, body, mind, and soul. The body was believed the traditional business of the medical men. The mind was the responsibility of the educators. The soul was the preoccupation of the ecclesiastics. We know now, for practical therapeutic purposes, the human personality must be considered a unity of function and purpose. The human must be studied as a total organism. If we are to understand ourselves, our relationship with others in general, and our relationship with God in particular, the trinity of our nature as Ra likes to call it, the mind-body-spirit complex, makes it imperative for religion and science to abandon the negative emotional thinking of the past. Mutual recognition must be made for the sake of common welfare of humanity. The key thing to remember is that happiness is a direct result of knowing yourself, knowing your habits and routines. Sometimes we go through the day and we don't really think about what we're doing every day. And so that exercise can help you 
Analyze your day. Analyze when you are unhappy. Analyze when you have emotional thinking of a negative nature and learn to combat that mental attitude. It's a direct result of knowing yourself. It is a self-made commodity, a do-it-yourself acquisition. How many times have you seen a happy face and noticeably brightened yourself? Think what your being happy can do for others. Your happiness can be a service to others. Somebody can be a little bit down and they come into the realm of your happiness and you make them happy. We are made to be happy. We are meant to be happy. Don't let negative emotional thinking color your life with dull gray coating. Utilize your waking hours to create happiness so that your supraconscious will becomes accustomed to the happiness habit and take over your entire personality. Happiness means health. It means longevity. It means success. Develop the happiness habit. Maxwell Maltz writes in his book Psycho-Cybernetics that you can acquire the happiness habit. Maltz explains that happiness is native to the human mind and its physical machine. We think better, perform better, feel better, and are healthier when we're happy. Even our physical sense organs work better. Russian psychologist K. Kekchev tested people when they were thinking pleasant and unpleasant thoughts. He found that when thinking pleasant thoughts, they could see better, taste, smell, and hear better, and detect finer differences in touch. Dr. William Bates proved that eyesight improves immediately when the individual is thinking pleasant thoughts or visualizing pleasant scenes. Margaret Corbett has found that memory is greatly improved and the mind is relaxed when the subject is thinking pleasant thoughts. Psychosomatic medicine has proved that our stomachs, liver, heart, and all our internal organs function better when we are happy. Thousands of years ago, King Solomon said in his Proverbs, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth up the bones. It is significant, too, that both Judaism and Christianity prescribe joy, rejoicing, thankfulness, cheerfulness as a means towards righteousness and the good life. Harvard psychologists studied the correlation between happiness and criminality and concluded that the old Dutch proverb, happy people are never wicked, was scientifically true. They found that a majority of criminals came from unhappy homes, had a history of unhappy human relationships. A 10-year study of frustration at Yale University brought out that much of what we call immorality and hostility to others is brought about by our own unhappiness, not our weakness, Mr. Jordan Peterson, our unhappiness. Dr. Schindler has said that unhappiness is the sole cause of all psychosomatic ills and that happiness is the only cure. The very word disease means a state of unhappiness. Disease, a recent survey showed that by and large, optimistic, cheerful businessmen who looked on the bright side of things were more successful than pessimistic businessmen. Yes, I have said many times that our thoughts create reality, but I want to introduce the scientific aspect of this. You don't have to believe me that your thoughts create reality. Just be happy and watch what happens. It appears that in our popular thinking about happiness, Maltz says that we have managed to get the cart before the horse. Be good, we say, and you'll be happy. I would be happy, we say to ourselves, if I could be successful and healthy. Be kind and loving to other people and you will be happy. It might be nearer the truth if we said, be happy and you will be good, more successful, healthier, feel and act more charitably towards others. 
So as Malt is saying here, if we are happy, we are more charitable towards others. It is a component of our service to others. Our happiness is we must be happy. Do you feel guilty when you're happy? Perhaps you are mistaken in any guilt that you have for your happiness. Happiness is not something that is earned or deserved. Happiness is not a moral issue any more than the circulation of the blood is a moral issue. Both are necessary to health and well-being. Happiness is simply a state of mind in which our thinking is pleasant a good share of the time. If you wait until you deserve to think pleasant thoughts, you're likely to think unpleasant thoughts concerning your own unworthiness. Happiness is not the reward of virtue, said Spinoza, but virtue itself. Nor do we delight in happiness because we restrain our lusts, but on the contrary, because we delight in it. Therefore, we are able to restrain them. Many sincere people are deterred from seeking happiness because they feel that it would be selfish or wrong. Unselfishness does not make for happiness, for it not only gets our minds directed toward away from ourselves and our introspection, our faults, sins, troubles, unpleasant thoughts, or pride in our goodness, but it also enables us to express ourselves creatively and fulfill ourselves in helping others. I don't know if I've released the episode Overcoming Numb by the time you hear this one, but I went through a period where I felt numb and unhappy. And the biggest solution for me was in thinking about other people and praying for other people and in doing service and taking myself outside of myself. It's not selfish to be happy. One of the most pleasant thoughts to any human being is the thought that they are needed that they are important enough to help and add to the happiness of some other human being. However, if we make a moral issue of happiness and conceive of it as something to be earned as a sort of reward for being unselfish, we are very apt to feel guilty about wanting happiness. Happiness comes from being and acting unselfishly as a natural accompaniment to the being and acting, not as a payoff or prize. It goes along with people that feel guilty about making money. A lot of times those same people are feeling guilty about being happy. If we are rewarded for being unselfish, the next logical step is to assume that the more self-abnegating and miserable we make ourselves, the more happy we will be. The premise leads to the absurd conclusion that the way to be happy is to be unhappy. If there is any moral issue involved, it is on the side of happiness rather than unhappiness. The attitude of unhappiness is not only painful, it is mean and ugly, says William James. What can be more base and unworthy than the pining, pulling, mumping mood, no matter by what outward ills it may have been engendered? What is more injurious to others? What less helpful as a way out of the difficulty? It but fastens and perpetuates the trouble which occasioned it and increases the total evil of the situation. Happiness does not lie in the future, but in the present. We are never living, but only hoping to live, and looking forward always to being happy. It is inevitable that we never are so, said Pascal. Dr. Maxwell Maltz, who was a plastic surgeon, explained that he had found that one of the most common causes of unhappiness among his patients is that they are attempting to live their lives on the deferred payment plan, they do not live nor enjoy life now, but wait for some future event or occurrence. They will be happy when they get married, when they get a better job, when they get the house paid for, 
when they get the children through college, when they have completed some task or won some victory. Invariably, they are disappointed. Happiness is a mental habit, a mental attitude, and if it is not learned in practice, in the present moment, it is never experienced. It cannot be made contingent upon solving some external problem. When one problem is solved, another appears to take its place. Life is a series of problems. If you are to be happy at all, you must be happy, period. Not happy because of. I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, said Khalif Abdel Raham, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Happiness is a mental habit which can be cultivated and developed. Most people are about as happy as they make up their minds to be, said Abraham Lincoln. Happiness is purely internal, said psychologist Dr. Matthew N. Chapel. It is produced not by objects, but by ideas, thoughts, and attitudes, which can be developed and constructed by the individual's own activities, irrespective of the environment. No one other than a saint can be 100% happy all the time, and as George Bernard Shaw quipped, we would probably be miserable if we were but we can by taking thought and making a simple decision be happy and think pleasant thoughts a large share of the time regarding that multitude of little events and circumstances of daily living which now make us unhappy to a large extent we react to petty annoyances frustrations and the like with grumpiness dissatisfaction resentment and irritability purely out of habit we have practiced reacting that way so long it has become habitual. Much of this habitual unhappiness reaction originated because of some event which we interpreted as a blow to our self-esteem. A driver honks his horn at us unnecessarily. Someone interrupts and doesn't pay attention while we're talking. Someone doesn't come through for us as we think they should. Even impersonal events can be interpreted and reacted to as affronts to our self-esteem. I see this all the time. It frustrates me. People get unhappy about something someone else said to them or the way they are treated. The bus we wanted to catch had to be late. It had to go and rain when we planned to play golf. Traffic had to get into a snarl just when we needed to catch the plane. We react with anger, resentment, self-pity, or in other words, unhappiness. Stop letting events push you around. Maltz says the best cure that he had found for this sort of thing is to use unhappiness's own weapon, self-esteem. Have you ever been to a TV show and seen the master of ceremonies manipulate the audience? He asked a patient. He brings out a sign which says applause, and everyone applauds. He brings out another which says laughter, and everyone laughs. They act like sheep, as if they were slaves, and meekly react as they are told to react. You are acting the same way. You're letting outward events and other people dictate to you how you shall feel and how you shall react. You are acting as an obedient slave and obeying promptly when some event or circumstance signals to you, be angry, get upset, or now is the time to feel unhappy. Learning the happiness habit, you become a master instead of a slave. Or as Robert Louis Stevenson said, the habit of being happy enables one to be 
freed or largely freed from the domination of outward conditions. Your opinion can add to unhappy events. Even in regard to tragic conditions and the most adverse environment, we can usually manage to be happier, if not completely happy by not adding to the misfortune our own feelings of self-pity, resentment, and our own adverse opinion. How can I be happy? The wife of an alcoholic husband asked. I don't know, I said, but you can be happier by resolving not to add resentment and self-pity to your misfortune. How can I possibly be happy? Asks a businessman. I just lost 200000 on the stock market. I'm ruined and disgraced. You can be happier, I said. By not adding your own opinion to the facts, it is a fact you lost 200000 It is your opinion that you are ruined and disgraced. I personally believe that when I feel events happen to me, I state that everything is working to my advantage. I continue to react in that way. In the same way that Maltz says, he suggested that a patient memorized a saying of Epictetus, which has always been his favorite. Men are disturbed, said the sage, not by things that happen, but by their opinion of the things that happen. When Malt announced that he wanted to be a doctor, he was told that this could not be because his folks had no money. It was a fact that his mother had no money. It was only an opinion that he could never be a doctor. And later he was told he could never take postgraduate courses in Germany and that it was impossible for a young plastic surgeon to hang out his own shingle and go into business for himself in New York. He did all those things. And one of the things that helped him was that he kept reminding himself that all these impossibles were opinions, not facts. He not only managed to reach his goals, but he was happy in the process. Even when he had to pawn his overcoat to buy medical books and do without lunch in order to purchase cadavers, Malt claimed to be in love with this beautiful girl who married someone else. These were facts, but he kept reminding himself that it was merely his opinion that was a catastrophe and that life was not worth living. He got over it, but it turned out that it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to him. It has been pointed out earlier that since man is a goal-striving being, he is functioning naturally and normally when he is oriented towards some positive goal and striving towards some desirable goal. Happiness is a symptom of normal natural functioning, and when man is functioning as a goal-striver, he tends to feel fairly happy regardless of circumstances. Maltz's young business executive friend was unhappy because he had lost $200,000. Thomas Edison lost a laboratory worth millions in a fire with no insurance. What in the world would you do? Someone asked. We will start rebuilding tomorrow morning, said Edison. He maintained an aggressive attitude. He was still goal-oriented despite his misfortune. And because he did maintain an aggressive goal-striving attitude, it is a good bet that he was never unhappy about his loss. Psychologist H.L. Hollingsworth has said that happiness requires problems plus a mental attitude that is ready to meet distress with action toward a solution. Much of what we call evil is due entirely to the way men take the phenomenon, said William James. It can so often be converted into a bracing and tonic good by a simple change of the sufferer's inner attitude from one of fear to one of fight. Its sting can so often depart and turn into a relish when after vainly seeking to shun it, we agree to face about and bear it cheerfully that a man is simply bound in honor 
with reverence to many of the facts that seem at first to disconcern his peace to adopt this way of escape. Refuse to admit their badness, despise their power, ignore their presence, turn your attention the other way, and so far as you yourself are concerned at any rate, though the facts may still exist, their evil character exists no longer. Since you make them evil or good by your own thoughts about them, it is the ruling of your thought which proves to be your principal concern. William James from the Varieties of Religious Experience Maltz explains that, looking back on his own life, he could see the happiest years were those when he was struggling as a medical student and living from hand to mouth in the early days of his practice. Many times he was hungry, he was cold, he was ill-clad, and he worked hard, minimum of about 12 hours a day. Many times he did not know from month to month where the money was going to come from to pay his rent, but he did have a goal. He had this consuming desire to reach it, and he determined persistence which kept him working toward it. He related this to the young business executive that he mentioned earlier, suggesting the real cause of his unhappy feeling was not that he had lost $200,000, but that he had lost his goal. He had lost his aggressive attitude and was yielding passively rather than reacting aggressively. I must have been crazy, he told him later, to let you convince me that losing the money was not what was making me unhappy, but I'm awfully glad you did. He stopped moaning about his misfortune, faced about, got himself another goal and started working toward it. Within five years, he not only had more money than ever before in his life, but for the first time, he was in a business that he enjoyed. Here's an exercise that Maltz gives. Form the habit of reacting aggressively and positively towards threats and problems. Form the habit of keeping goal-oriented all the time, regardless of what happens. Do this by practicing a positive, aggressive attitude, both in actual, everyday situations which come up, and also in your imagination. See yourself in your imagination taking positive, intelligent action towards solving a problem or reaching a goal. See yourself reacting to threats, not by running away or evading them, but by meeting them, dealing with them, grappling with them in an aggressive and intelligent manner. Most people are brave only in the dangers to which they accustom themselves, either in imagination or practice, said Bulwer-Lytton, the English novelist. The measure of mental health is the disposition to find good everywhere, said Ralph Waldo Emerson. The idea that happiness or keeping one's thoughts pleasant most of the time can be deliberately and systematically cultivated by practicing in a more or less cold-blooded manner strikes many as rather incredible, if not ludicrous, when it is suggested. Yet experience has shown not only that this can be done, but that it is about the only way that the habit of happiness can be cultivated. In the first place, happiness isn't something that happens to you. It is something you yourself do and determine upon. If you wait for happiness to catch up with you or just happen or be brought to you by others, you're likely to have a long wait. No one can decide what your thoughts shall be but yourself. If you wait until circumstances justify your thinking pleasant thoughts, you're likely to wait forever. Every day is a mixture of good and evil. No day or circumstance is completely 100% good. 
There are ments and facts present in the world and in our personal lives at all times, which justify either a pessimistic and grumpy outlook or an optimistic and happy outlook, depending upon our choice. It is largely a matter of selection, attention, and decision, nor is it a matter of being either intellectually honest or dishonest. Good is as real as evil. It is merely a matter of what we choose to give primary attention and what thoughts we hold in the mind. Deliberately choosing to think pleasant thoughts is more than a palliative. It can have very practical results. Carl Erskine, the famous baseball pitcher, has said that bad thinking got him into more spots than bad pitching. One sermon has helped me overcome pressure better than the advice of any coach, he said. Its substance was like a squirrel hoarding chestnuts. We should store up our moments of happiness and triumph so that in a crisis we can draw upon these memories for help and inspiration. As a kid, I used to fish at the bend of a little country stream just outside my hometown. I can vividly remember this spot in the middle of a big green pasture surrounded by tall, cool trees. Whenever tension builds up, both on or off the ball field now, I concentrate on this relaxing scene and the knots inside me loosen up. Gene Tunney tells how concentrating on the wrong facts almost caused him to lose his first fight with Jack Dempsey. He awoke one night from a nightmare. The vision was of myself, bleeding, mauled, and helpless, sinking to the canvas and being counted out. I couldn't stop trembling. Right there, I had already lost that ring match, which meant everything to me, the championship. What could I do about this terror? I could guess the cause. I had been thinking about the fight in the wrong way. I had been reading the newspapers, and all they had said was how Tunney was going to lose. Through the newspapers, I was losing the battle in my own mind. Part of the solution was obvious. Stop reading the papers. Stop thinking of the Dempsey menace, Jack's killing punch and ferocity of tack. I simply had to close the doors of my mind to destructive thoughts and divert my thinking to other things. Dr. Elwood Worcester in his book Body, Mind, and Spirit relates the testimony of a world-famous scientist. Up to my 50th year, I was unhappy, ineffective man. None of the works on which my reputation rests were published. I lived in a constant sense of gloom and failure. Perhaps my most painful symptoms were a blinding headache, which recurred usually two days of the week during which I could do nothing. I had read some of the literature of New Thought, which at the time appeared to be bunkum, and some statement of William James on the directing of attention to what is good and useful and ignoring the rest. One saying of his stuck in my mind, we might have to give up our philosophy of evil, but what is that in comparison with gaining a life of goodness, or words to that effect? Hitherto these doctrines had seemed to me only mystical theories, but realizing that my soul was sick and growing worse, and that my life was intolerable, I determined to put them to proof. I decided to limit the period of conscious effort to one month, as I thought this time long enough to prove its value or worthlessness to me. During this month, I resolved to impose certain restrictions on my thoughts. If I thought of the past, I would try to let my mind dwell only on its happy, pleasing instance, the bright days of my childhood, the inspiration of my teachers, and the slow revelation of my life work. In thinking of the present, I would deliberately turn my attention to its desirable elements, my home, the opportunities my solitude gave me to work, and so on, and I resolved to make the utmost use of these opportunities and to ignore the fact they seemed to lead to nothing. In thinking of the future, I determined to regard every worthy and possible ambition as within my grasp. 
Ridiculous as this seemed at the time, in view of what has come to me, I see that only defect of my plan was that it aimed too low and did not include enough. He then tells how his headache ceased within one week and how he felt happier and better than ever before in his life. And he adds, the outward changes in my life resulting from my change of thought have surprised me more than the inward changes, yet they spring from the latter. There were certain eminent men, for example, whose recognition I deeply craved. The foremost of those wrote me out of the clear sky and invited me to become his assistant. My works have all been published, and a foundation has been created to publish all that I may write in the future. The men with whom I have worked have been very helpful and cooperative toward me chiefly on account of my changed disposition. Formerly, they would not have endured me. As I looked back on all these changes, it seems to me that in some blind way I stumbled on a path of life and set forces to working for me which before were against me. How an inventor used happy thoughts. Professor Elmer Gates of the Smithsonian Institution was one of the most successful inventors this country has ever known, and a recognized genius. He made a daily practice of calling up pleasant ideas and memories and believed that this helped him in his work. If a person wants to improve himself, he said, let him summon those finer feelings of benevolence and usefulness, which are called up only now and then. Let him make this a regular exercise like swinging dumbbells. Let him gradually increase the time devoted to these psychical gymnastics, and at the end of the month, he will find the change in himself surprising. The alteration will be apparent in his actions and thoughts. Morally speaking, the man will be a great improvement of his former self. How to learn the happiness habit. Our self-image and our habits tend to go together. Change one, and you will automatically change the other. The word habit originally meant a garment or clothing. We still speak of riding habits and habiliments. This gives us an insight into the true nature of habit. Our habits are literally garments worn by our personalities. They are not accidental or happenstance. We have them because they fit us. They are consistent with our self-image and our entirely personality pattern. When we consciously and deliberately develop new and better habits, our self-image tends to outgrow the old habits and grow into the new pattern. I can see many patients cringe when I mention changing habitual action patterns or acting out new behavior patterns until they become automatic. They confuse habit with addiction. And addiction is something you feel compelled to and which causes severe withdrawal symptoms. Habits, on the other hand, are merely reactions and responses which we have learned to perform automatically without having to think or decide. They are performed by our creative mechanism. Fully 95% of our behavior, feeling, and response is habitual. The pianist does not decide which keys to strike. The dancer does not decide which foot to move where. The reaction is automatic and unthinking. In much the same way, our attitudes, emotions, and beliefs tend to become habitual. In the past, we learned that certain attitudes, ways of feeling and thinking were appropriate to certain situations. Now we tend to think, feel, and act the same way whenever we encounter what we interpret as the same sort of situation. What we need to understand is that these habits, unlike addictions, can be modified, changed, or reversed simply by taking the trouble to make a conscious decision and then by practicing or acting out the new response or behavior. The pianist can consciously decide to strike a different key if he chooses. The dancer can consciously decide to learn a new step, and there is no agony about it. It does require constant watchfulness and practice, 
until the new behavior pattern is thoroughly learned. Practice Exercise Habitually, you put on either your right shoe first or your left shoe. Habitually, you tie your shoes by either passing the right hand lace around behind the left hand lace or vice versa. Tomorrow morning, determine which shoe you put on first, how you tie your shoes. Now consciously decide that for the next 21 days, you are going to form a new habit by putting on the other shoe first and tying your laces in a different way. Now each morning as you decide to put on your shoes in a certain manner, let this simple act remind you to change other habits and ways of thinking, acting, and feeling throughout that one day. Say to yourself as you tie your shoes, I am beginning the day in a new and better way. Then consciously decide throughout the day. I want you to commit to these things with me. First of all, I will be as cheerful as possible. Secondly, I will try to feel and act a little more friendly toward other people. And third, I'm going to be a little less critical and a little more tolerant of other people, their faults and failings and mistakes. I will place the best possible interpretation upon their actions. And fourth, insofar as possible, I'm going to act as if success was inevitable and I already am the sort of personality I want to be. I will practice acting like and feeling like this new personality. Fifth, I will not let my own opinion color facts in a pessimistic or negative way. Sixth, I will practice smiling at least three times during the day. Seventh, regardless of what happens, I will react as calmly and as intelligently as possible. And eight, I will ignore completely and close my mind to all those pessimistic and negative facts which I can do nothing to change. It sounds simple, right? But each of the above habitual ways of acting, feeling, and thinking do have beneficial and constructive influence on your self-image and your happiness. Act them out for 21 days, experience them, and see if worry, guilt, hostility have not been diminished and if confidence has not been increased. You are happy. You have this happiness within you at all times. I want you to accept it and embrace it no matter what's going on in your life. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com. Please check out my art website. So many new paintings and prints available in a variety of new formats at www.newearth.art. And welcome to The Reality Revolution.